I think what we all know in our heart is that what we need are the good ideas presented well. Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Poudois, founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or as many like to say, IEW. My name is Julie Walker, and I'm honored to serve Andrew and IEW as the Chief Marketing Officer. Our goal is to equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. So, Andrew, when I think about our topic for today, I think about one of the very first times that I met you, and that was at a teaching, writing, structure, and style workshop that I hosted as a part of my role at Biola University. And I remember sitting in that workshop with a bunch of other homeschool moms who wanted to help their teens learn how to write. And some of these moms, well, most of these moms were brand new to you and what you were doing. And though that first time and then the next year and then the following year, <laughs> I mean, I've watched the Teaching, Writing, Structure, and Style video course as a video multiple times, but I also had the opportunity to watch you do it live for many years in a row. And some of my favorite memories of those initial times that I heard this from you was those last, it's almost like you only had 30 minutes left, 45 minutes left. You have spent two days teaching and we were all exhausted and you gave some powerful advice at the very end and you talked about why this is so important, why this work is so important. And we don't have 45 minutes here, and we certainly don't have two full days for you to do the teaching, writing, structure, and style. But if you don't mind, would you just share with our listeners some of those things that you say that has to, it starts out with this kind of story, and I'll I'll kind of cue you in. People were asking you the question, at what point does content matter more? than structure and style. Right. Yeah, that uh, that was a question that I was getting after just a few years of doing this. And of course, a lot of people, in fact, all of us, mm-hmm. all of us come to teaching our children or our students with the primary influence being our experience in school. Yeah. And One of the things about that is that our experience in school, we kind of remember it from the most recent to the most distant. So when we think about what were we taught about writing as part of what we need to teach our students, our kids, about Mm -hmm. writing, Mm -hmm. comes from our most recent experience of being taught writing. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that for people is university classes Mm -hmm. or a particular maybe high school English teacher who had a very strong, intense desire 
to make you think better. Mm -hmm. And so people would come with that and then they would look at our system and then they would say, okay, well, I like the system. Mm -hmm. It makes sense. It resonates. It's good, but. Mm -hmm. And, And I think the unspoken word was real. When do we worry about real stuff? Right. Meaning the content. And this is a very valid question, and I generally would answer this question in the, in the early years by saying, I don't know. <laughs> uh, honestly, I'm just a music teacher. <laughs> I stumbled into this thing. But after a couple years, and I was still traveling up to Canada each summer, uh, working with Dr. Webster, getting to know him better and better— And so one year I I asked him, I said, Dr. Webster, people are pestering me with this question. When does content become more important than following the rules of structure and style? Mm -hmm. Like at what grade level? That's what they want to know. Mm -hmm. I don't really want to answer the question, but I keep getting it. So you tell me, like high school? Right. And he said, no. And I said, well, okay, then surely, you know, in the university and you're, you taught university classes, you know, in Africa, in Canada for decades, um, didn't you grade or value or put a higher importance on the, the content and the ideas over the structure and style stuff? Mm-hmm. And he said, well, no. So I'm kind of confused now. I said, well, surely, I mean, graduate students. And he said, no. And I said, okay, I give up. Why? What what are you trying to communicate here? Why is that so important? Why do you grade your students in university upper-level classes on following the checklist more than anything else? And that's when he said the thing that I repeat pretty much at the end of every teaching, writing, instruction, style seminar is he said to me, well, a bad idea well presented can be more effective than a good idea poorly presented. History proves this. And of course, that's his PhD is history. And then we talked a little bit about how, through various periods of history, there have been some very bad ideas that were presented very effectively in such a way that it duped a, a whole majority of the population into some very bad things that the power of the written and spoken word it is indisputable when you look at the rise and fall, if you will, mm-hmm. of civilizations and regimes. Mm-hmm. And that kind of brought me to the point where I realized that what I was doing wasn't just a nice thing. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just a good way to teach. It wasn't just going to work as a enterprise. Mm -hmm. 
because it was good, <laughs> but that it was really much more significant because I think what we all know in our heart is that what we need are the good ideas presented well. And if we don't have both of those, then we cannot be as effective and, and possibly even less effective than people who have worse or even bad ideas mm -hmm. but present them very well. Now, of course, that was 20-some years ago. Sure. And we have moved into a world where the presentation of ideas is much more popular mm -hmm. through different media, mm -hmm. everything from, you know, films to short films to memes to... Um, very less formal kinds of blog posts or even polemic podcasts. Mm -hmm. But at the core, there's the quality of the presentation that affects our perception of the information. And so that's, that's kind of what I was getting at. And mm -hmm. then, you know, I would say something like, to me, you who are in my seminar here after two days of going through the whole program, you're the most important people in my life because you're trying to equip your children with the good, the true, and you're trying to equip them with the skills to communicate that effectively using principles of what, what I wouldn't necessarily have called then, but I would call now, the principles, the art of rhetoric, mm -hmm. so that we together can promulgate goodness and truth in the world today, which is always in need of it. You know, yes. we, we could sit around and mis be miserable about this condition of the world, but that's always been the case. You know, it's always been the case where there were, you know, good and beautiful things and the opposite. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, maybe through different periods of history, the intensity level of one of the other is higher. Mm -hmm. But there's always been that desire deeply, I think, to impact the culture and as teachers and parents mm -hmm. to equip our students to impact the culture for the good. Mm -hmm. um, now, people could sit around and disagree about what's good in any particular situation. And that's great. That's called debate. That's called discourse. That's, that's the progress of civilization is to have meaningful debate. But when, when we don't have the skills to do it, we can't have as meaningful a debate. If our vocabulary shrinks, it shrinks our capacity for thought. So, yes, what we do is really cute in the elementary classroom, mm -hmm. and we give kids nice long, you know, lists of words, synonyms for band words and L-Y, and we force them to practice all this stuff and dress up. And, but what we're really doing there is we're expanding their capacity for formal thinking because that's how we do 
formal thinking is with language. That's how logic comes into the world. It's it's spoken into existence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if there aren't people to speak it into existence, Mm -hmm. then it remains fuzzy Mm -hmm. or or downright useless. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's kind of what I started with in terms of realizing what what I was doing. And this was, like I said, over 20 years ago when I met you. Yes. <laughs> was much greater than what it appeared to be on the surface. Yes. Yes. You, uh, you often mention Webster's Edict. Yes. Which is? <laughs> Hands-on structure and style. Hands-off content. I wonder if Dr. Webster listens to this podcast. I highly doubt it. And, um, and if he would recognize himself in you saying that, Andrew. Well, I, I don't have quite the same um, Canadian tone quality mm-hmm. in my voice. But there was a seriousness about it. And and he he lived it. I mean, I remember him looking at some of the papers that I brought him, knowing full well that his worldview was very different than that which was portrayed in the paper. Yeah. But he would only critique the structure and style. Yep. And he would never criticize the idea itself, Mm -hmm. even when I knew that he did not agree with it. Mm -hmm. You know, either, I don't know, politically, theologically, socially, whatever. And, and I have always respected that, that he has lived by his own edict. And it's a hard one, especially when you're attached to influencing the thinking and the values and the yeah. understanding of your students. To let them write whatever they actually are thinking and then just work with the technique Mm -hmm. and give them the freedom to have their own thoughts. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's funny today. Everybody's running around saying, we want people to think for themselves. You hear that every day, right? And yet some of the very people who say you should think for yourself simultaneously want you to think exactly what they think about something. Mm -hmm. So if you're honest about that idea. Think for yourself. Okay, you teach the tools, you teach grammar, you teach logic, you teach rhetoric, but you have to give the freedom for that to happen. And I think that's a hard thing to do, but the way Webster said it, hands on the technical side. That's our job. Hands off the, the mind of the student. Um, it's a hard road to hoe. <laughs> yes, it is. Well, I know that uh, thinking back, another memory that I have, and this is actually after I started working for you. So attended that first seminar with you, continued to work for Biola for um, almost a full decade, mm-hmm. and then joined you in this great work that we are now doing together. But one of the things that we did after I started working for you was we did a retreat for some of our staff members at uh, Williamsburg. Yes. And you had gone to hear a lecture on one of your famous 
American heroes, Thomas Jefferson, and he gave the speech where he talked about the pen being mightier than the sword. Reflect on that and how it relates to this. Well, I don't know who originally said that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of one of those little aphorisms that float around. Sure, sure. Everybody could finish it. You know, the pen is... Mightier than the sword, yes. Yeah, yes, yes. although one little first grader once, when asked to fill in the blank, he said, the pen is mightier than the pig. <laughs> I suppose that's Which true. Which restrains it <laughs> yes. if it's a well-built pen. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, and I have personal experience with escaped pigs and goats. Oh, but, dear, yes. Uh, but, we, we, you know, we say that. Why? Well, okay, you know, the sword makes history, Right. Uh, it's those who conquer then set up the new government or civilization or rules or whatever. But it's the ideas that then can change that. And that's where we see, you know, I think we, we all see the power of ideas. Uh, Richard Weaver wrote a book, I don't know, 30, 40 years ago called Ideas Have Consequences. Hmm. And certainly... You can look at things in our society that are really good. There are certain things that are happening now in our world that are better than they ever have been in all of world history. And you can also look at certain things and say, these are really bad. Mm -hmm. And if they don't change, Mm -hmm. that could get worse and that would actually be harmful to people. Mm -hmm. And so how do you conquer, how do you defeat a bad idea? Well, you can either pull out your weapons and duel it out, (laughs) which isn't very practical in most cases. Um, Or you can take the battle with words. And I I think I mentioned this to you, but I recently finished – I would say reading, but to be totally honest, I would have to say listening or reading with my ears, Eric Metaxas' biography of William Wilberforce. And any anyone out there who is not familiar with the life of William Wilberforce and what he did, it's an absolute must read. I mean, it's, it's right there side by side with, say, Frederick Douglass in mm. terms of here was a man who used the power of language and persistence and just sheer determination to make the world a better place. And Wilberforce uh, spent decades basically working to better humanity by eliminating the slave trade in the British Empire. And it it didn't happen overnight. In fact, the first time that he proposed the bill in parliament, it it was defeated like 90-some percent because it was so institutionalized. It was an evil that had become so institutionalized, no one could conceive of a world without Mm. the slave trade. Wow. But he did. And little by little by little— with the tremendous facility of skilled thought and expression. Mm -hmm. And the two have to go together. Mm -hmm. 
he was able to convert eventually, and it took a long time, but he was able to convert the parliament of the British Empire to abolish the slave trade. Yep. And that was that was the thing he lived to do. That was his great mission in life. But he had the training to accomplish it. He didn't just stand up and yell at people. <laughs> he might have raised his voice from time to time, but mm-hmm. what did he do? He collected evidence. He organized. He built allies. He built coalitions. He was persistent. And, and he was the wittiest most eloquent speaker, Mm. really, of his time in that place. And people were compelled by the power of his language. Mm -hmm. He didn't pull out a gun or a sword. Mm -hmm. He pulled out, if you will, the the super word, which if you look at S word would be sword. Right? Have you ever thought about that? No, never never thought about that. Word with an S, is sword. And so it's the super word that becomes then the weapon by which the evil can be defeated. So I, I can't recommend that book highly enough. It is, it, it's very possibly going to be my best book of the year for 2021. But 2021 is young. That's true. So it'll have to be a pretty significant rival to that because that book just empowered me, inspired me, um, gave me the vision of what one man, when he is able to bring others into into his world of this is the truth about that horrible thing. And it's, it's all about vision casting too. And, you know, he, he did use, he used diagrams and illustrations. And one of my favorite things, and you can see this in the movie Amazing Grace. Mm-hmm. You've seen that movie. Yes, I have. Do you remember the scene where he hosts this kind of fancy dinner party on a big ship mm-hmm. in the harbor? Yep. And so all of these, you know, elite British lords and ladies and upper class types are eating their fancy foods on the ship as it's going through the harbor and it passes by a slave ship mm-hmm. that has the stench mm-hmm. of, of death. And then he's orchestrated this whole thing. So the boat stops right there next to that. And he's standing on the deck of the slave ship and he says, this is the smell of death. Mm. And he gives this great little eloquent picture through his words. Mm-hmm. And you could just see that that was one of the powerful rhetorical moments. Mm-hmm. How could they not experience that horrificness? Right. Uh, so, you know, that's, I think, what we would hope mm-hmm. is that, you know, maybe out of a thousand kids that we influence in our life, or 10,000, or mm-hmm. ten. tens of thousands, yeah. You know, um, there'd be another Wilberforce yeah. out of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you, Andrew. I hope that this talk, and I'm sure it has been, 
very inspiring to our listeners. And, and do, listeners, let us know what you think about this topic here and let us know uh, whether or not you have found this teaching, writing, structure, and style program to be something that has empowered you to then go out and do something great, whether it be just for your own kids at home or whether it be in your classroom or perhaps at your university influencing other teachers who can then go out and change the world with us. Thank you, Andrew. It's a pleasure as always. Thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, you can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, or just visit us each week at IEW.com slash podcast. Until then, on behalf of Andrew Pudua and the team at IEW, I thank you for allowing us to partner with you on your journey toward better listening, speaking, reading, writing, and thinking. <laughs>